Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Here's the inside, the most holy place there where the ark was stored in this tabernacle or this tent of the meeting. Also at the front inside there was the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the golden menorah, the lampstand with the seven lamps. Those were in the front part. And in the front was the brazen altar. Now the brazen altar was for the altar of burnt offerings so the people could make at one month atonement for sin because as Leviticus told us without the shedding of blood there was no remission of sin so day and night day and night day and night the brazen altar was used for animal blood burnt offerings to the Lord you could always smell them early in the morning and at 3 p.m. the twilight hour when the evening offering was made it's a burnt offering to the Lord a pleasing aroma an offering made to the Lord by fire. And then Moses is given a whole, whole litany of sacrifices. This one is the daily offering. He is told that everyone is to line up in a certain way in the encampment around the Holy of Holies. They are all, God is supposed to be the center of their life. And then the priests and then all the people, there were very elaborate instructions. And in that Holy of Holy place, there would be a pillar of cloud by day signifying the true presence of God is in the tent and a pillar of fire by night over the true presence of God is always dwelling in the middle of his people. God was always there inside the ark in the Holy of Holies and their entire life centered around the Lord until that ark could have a permanent home when they made it to the Holy Land. Solomon finally built the first temple. And once that first holy temple was built, sacrifices only could be brought to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It was forbidden to bring sacrifices anywhere else. So this is in Leviticus 17. Now that there's a permanent structure, sacrifices, animal blood must be offered there. But back in the desert, when they first came to Sinai, you'll remember when the Lord said, keep my covenant, you are my own possession, my own special people, all the earth is mine and you will be mine, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people set apart. And he will go with them even after the infraction of the golden calf, he will journey with them. And as they were lined up in the desert, if you did our Exodus study with us, you remember they even were in the shape of a cross and the Lion of Judah was leading the march and the four living creatures were surrounding on each corner the tabernacle of the Lord. And Paul realized this to the Corinthians. He said they all drank the same supernatural drink in the desert. They drank from the supernatural rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now in the book of Leviticus, Moses gives us elaborate rules. God is holy and fallen humans are not. Only clean people may approach God. Sin must be paid for with a blood sacrifice of animals. And instructions for God's chosen people, Israel, to have right worship before a holy God. There will have to be a priesthood and the priest will intercede in the covenant between God and the people. And the people will be set apart and they will be a worldwide witness to the one true God. 
and there will be five different types of offerings, sacrifices. Leviticus 1, the burnt offering. Leviticus 2, the grain offering. Leviticus 3, the offerings of well-being or peace. Leviticus 4, the sin offering. And Leviticus 5, the offerings with restitution. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just really briefly, the daily offering, twice a day, morning and twilight. The burnt offering to atone for intentional sin. The grain offering to give a gift to God could be a combination of various things. The peace offering or the fellowship offering is the only one that's voluntary, not obligatory, but it was an offering of thanksgiving to God for being saved from personal danger, from receiving salvation of some kind. And that was the only one that could be shared also with others in a communal setting. And then there was the guilt sin offering. And this would even cover accidental sins. Maybe uh, you didn't even know you did something wrong. But the all-time holiest day on the face of the earth for the Jews was the day of atonement. It's it's called Yom Kippur and it's described in Leviticus 16. It is the absolute holiest day and it's an ancient Jewish ritual that helps us understand a fuller meaning of the purpose of the sacrificial final atoning blood of Jesus Christ. It's the most holy, most solemn day. It's the only day when the high priest of Israel could enter into that tent, into the holy of holies in the sacred tabernacle. It's the one day that the high priest would reconcile Israel with God one day a year and symbolically bring them back into the direct presence of the Lord. It's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Now, we've talked before how the Jews could never, ever, ever mention, utter the name of God, the ineffable name of God. It was so holy. It was never to be pronounced out loud. It was never to be used outside of the temple. And even in the temple, it was used very infrequently only on the day of atonement. The high priest would use the ineffable name of God 10 times on this day. And when he would use the name, all the people would fall down and say, blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. They would prostrate themselves on the ground and cry out to the Lord. Very dramatic. And, and just increased awe and importance of God, the name of God, the ineffable name of God. It was called the Tetragrammaton for the Jews. Here it is written out in Hebrew, the four letters. They wouldn't dare spell the name out. And just to educate us a little bit, on June 29th and 208, the Vatican issued an instruction asking that Yahweh, the ineffable name of God, be removed from all Catholic liturgy, hymns, songs, that we are not to say it. And the reason was because it violates the long-standing Jewish tradition of not naming the, the, the name of God. And so it was out of respect for the Jewish people that, that in 208, the Congregation for Divine Worship removed by a directive from Pope Benedict XVI, removed the name of Yahweh from our liturgies out of respect. Some of you might remember the song, uh, You Are Near, Yahweh, I Know You Are Near, had to be changed to, O Lord, I Know You Are Near, Adonai, I Know You Are Near, so that we wouldn't say the ineffable name out of respect. Also, I'm going to be using some photos now from the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is a real place. It's in Jerusalem, and it's a place where they, their aim is to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Right now, the, the Dome of the Rock is there. But this group, the Temple Institute, would like to reinstate animal sacrificial worship and build a third temple. And they're getting everything ready. So they are reconstructing. Here's the menorah. Here are the outfits for the high priest and, and the priesthood. They have the, the musical instruments ready to go. The menorah, a model of the ark, but the ark is still missing. It's never been found in their book. But it's a museum that you can visit in the old 
Jewish Quarter. So I'll be using some of their pictures, and you can go to their website and read it way more carefully. I'm going fast through it. But just to show you that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest always wore such an elaborate outfit with, with seven or different pieces. But on this day, on the Day of Atonement, he stripped down to only his white linen ephod woven in one piece. There were five required immersion baths, ritual baths for the high priest on this day of Yom Kippur. One of them, he had to wash his hands and wash his feet elaborately, which reminds me of Jesus, the high priest, the final high priest, who stripped down to his ephod, not to have his own feet washed, but to wash the feet of his 12 apostles on the night of his last supper. Now, the biggest day of the year for the high priest of Israel is this day, Yom Kippur, and he will offer a high priestly prayer. What is the high priestly prayer of Jesus? He offered one as well. In John 17, he prays the high priestly prayer, and you'll see some patterns here. But the bullock is brought out to the high priest, and the first thing he's going to do, he's called the high priest in Hebrew, is the Kahan Gadal. He will have a confession, and first he's going to confess all his own sins and the sins of his own household, and he's going to put them on the head of the bull. The people, during this prayer, he's going to pronounce the ineffable name of God three times, and the people are going to go prostrate, and they're going to in great reverence, prostrate themselves on the ground and say, blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. That's based again on Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. Moses told Israel, whenever I mention the Holy One's name, you should all ascribe greatness to our God. They would never ever dream of taking the Lord's name in vain, like so many people today. That would never ever ever be done. So he says to the congregation of the children of Israel that they will need two goats for a sin offering and one for a ram. Uh, uh, Two goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. The two goats, one lot is for Hashim. That's the ineffable name. The other lot is for Azazel. Now, Azazel is a place. It's the name that represents a very desolate place. And they're going to draw lots for these two goats, which one is going to be the sin offering and which one is going to be the burnt offering. And so the high priest will draw lots. And this is um, interesting because it usually was in the time before Jesus that his right hand would pick the one for God. It almost, uh, even though he was, he he wasn't looking and they mixed them all up. He would usually with his right hand, his blessing hand, pick the one for Hashim, for the name. And they would say, raise up your right hand. And if it was his right hand for the lot for the Lord, the assistant would say, master high priest, Kohen Gadal, raise up your right hand. And if it sometimes went to the left hand, then they switched to the left hand. But they had to select a scapegoat to atone for Israel's sins. The Kahan Gadal would place lots on these lots on the goats heads between their horns, either the lot that said for Hashim, the sin offering, and and all the people would say, blessed is the name of the Lord, or the Azazel that's going to be the scapegoat that's going to have all the sins of Israel heaped on them and be sent off to the desert. And so the high priest would tie a length of crimson dyed wool between the horns of the scapegoat and stand the goat facing the temple's eastern gate. And it's it's tied and with the crimson wool so they don't get mixed up. And there was a miracle of the crimson Wool. Back in the day before Jesus, before Messiah came, when the sacrifice was complete, the crimson wool would turn white as snow to signify, like Isaiah said, that their sins were like scarlet, but they have been made white as wool. And so these two goats get prepared. The high priest would leave them. He'd proceed with other aspects of 
this singular day's ceremonies, the other priests would mark the goat, the goat that was going later out to the desert. First, the high priest must offer the bullock and the incense. Everything on this day has to be done in a very specific prescribed order in Leviticus 16. The second Oral confession is made now. The high priest is now going to heap the sins on the bull. The confession on the first one was he and his family. This second time he does it, he is confessing on behalf of all his fellow priests. So he's heaping all the sins of the priesthood on this bull. The same bull gets another confession over it. Again, they say that it was better for the innocent man, the high priest who has already confessed, to make the rectification for those who are liable for the other priests. Now, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, first prays to the Father for himself. He and the Father were one, that he might glorify the Father and do his perfect will. Then Jesus prays for his disciples, his fellow priests. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And then thirdly, Jesus will pray for all believers, that they all may be one. And so it's two times on these bullocks, and then the third will be on the goat that's sent away for all people. So after that second blessing for the priest, the bullock is slaughtered and his blood is retained in a container. Now the priest is going to do the incense offering now, the altar of incense. He's going to need a shovel and he's going to have to uh, go up this ramp and get the incense. And every other day, the priests walk on the extreme sides of the ramp, but only on Yom Kippur. The high priest goes straight up the middle. It's a very, very brazen act, but it's a strong sense of reverence and awe for the Holy One. They're, they're, on this day, they go straight up the middle. The reason, listen to this, on Yom Kippur, the Yohan Kadal walks right along the middle of the ramp. The symbolism of this action is clear. Today, let's all take note of Israel's honor and her fondness in the Holy One's eyes. So much does he cherish Israel that today on this day, all her sins are forgiven. Israel can behave like a child in her father's house, openly declaring their love and affection. So it's a sign of love that this is the only day the high priest goes up the middle. And in Leviticus 16, they're told to take a shovel full of burning coals from the altar that is before Hashim, take a double handful of finely ground incense and bring them into the sanctuary beyond the curtain. Now, this is the holiest of all places. And the high priest will enter into the sanctuary with the, with the burning incense. Between the double curtains, there are two curtains separating into the holy of holies, the most holiest place on the face of the earth. He goes alongside the length of the curtain and he knows where to enter between the poles of the Ark of the Covenant, between the two poles of the Ark of the Covenant. And he places the coals down in front of the Ark. Now in the first temple, there was an Ark. In the second temple at the time of Jesus, remember there was no Ark. The Ark was missing after two Maccabees two. And so now at that time of the second temple, the priest would just lay the incense on the foundation stone where the ark used to sit. Now, the most difficult task for the high priest was this incense offering, because if even one tiny grain fell, it would be an incomplete sacrifice. They have to do everything perfectly in order to fulfill God's requirements. They can't even drop one grain. They make this chamber inside in the Holy of Holies filled with smoke, entirely filled with smoke. Now, he's going to do a very short prayer before he exits. And it's a very short prayer. And the reason it's short is because it's scary. It's so much awe to be in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. They could be struck 
dead. The first temple stood for 410 years and there were only 12 high priests during that period because they were very righteous and they were blessed with long lives. But in the second temple period that stood for 420 years, there were more than three hundred high priests. Because in these days there was a great spiritual decline and many of these men were corrupted, they bought their office through influence and many of them were struck dead. Additionally, if you would change any detail of this incense service, you could die. And with this in mind, it's understandable with all the eyes of Israel awaiting for them with bated breath to come back out. The high priest is concerned not to make the people worry any longer than necessary. The, the anxiety is growing. How long has he been in there? How long has he been in there? How long has he been in there? So they say a very short prayer and then they exit. But he's going to have to re-enter again. He's going to have to re-enter. The other priests are waiting for the high priest to come out. They have the blood of the bowl. They are not letting it congeal. They're keeping it swirling so it does not harden or congeal. He has to go back in a second time now with the blood of the bowl where he's heaped all the sins of himself, his family, and the priesthood. And he has to go back in and take his finger and sprinkle the blood toward the spot of the Ark of the Covenant of God. It says in Leviticus 16, he shall take some of the bullock's blood with his forefinger, sprinkle it on the east side of the Ark cover. He shall then sprinkle it with his forefinger seven times directly and followed by seven times downward. After he leaves the Holy of Holies in the same manner, he will place the vessel on the golden stand within the sanctuary. Now he enters the Holy of Holies again outside the court. He, the goat that has been designated for Hashim is brought by the lottery. It's, it's been selected. He slaughters the animal. He gathers its blood into another vessel. And now he's going to take the vessel containing the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat. He dashes from the blood of the bullock outside the curtain. He puts it in the same spot. The second vessel containing the blood of the sacrificial goat, they're mixed. He goes in a third time carrying the blood of the goat. He enters the chamber like he did before. He sprinkles the blood. So you see how involved this is. You see how blood sacrifice was was all they knew. It was what God told them they had to do. He shall go out of the altar, that is before God. He shall make an atonement. He shall take some of the bullock's blood and some of the ghost's blood and place the mixture on the horns of the altar all around, on all four sides, for all. Now he returns and that scapegoat's still waiting at the opposite gate, the eastern gate of the temple. He places his hands now on that scapegoat and he prays for all the iniquities of all the children of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he heaps them on top of that goat. And he, he all the people are, are, are just in awe and reverence. These are their sins being put on this innocent animal. And then he does a confession over that goat for all the people of Israel. And after confessing for Israel, the high priest gives the scapegoat to an individual who's been designated to take it, a warden really, to take it out to the desert. I looked up what scapegoat is in the dictionary. This is where we get the name, scapegoat, a person who is blamed for the wrongdoings, mistakes, or faults of others, especially for reasons of expediency. So this warden of the scapegoat, it's, it's been selected, usually a priest, takes the scapegoat, and there's an elaborate way they do this, but there's a certain bridge and they have to go. And on the way, people are teasing and taunting the goat. They said, especially Babylonians or Alexandrians from Egypt, on the way, they would attempt to get 
at the goat and they would pull at the goat's hair and they would cry, take our sins away, take our sins away and be off with you, take our sins and go. So they would taunt and tease the scapegoat and pull his hair. Now, it was always said that when Messiah comes, he would be beaten in his face and he would have his beard pulled and plucked out by revelers. And Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So these people are attempting to get at the scapegoat to pull out his hair. Pulling out the beard also of a condemned man before crucifixion was a very common part of the humiliation carried out against the crucified. Historical records of the Jews consistently describe men who were condemned to death and had their beards torn from their faces. In the New Testament, that is fulfilled when Matthew 26 tells us that they spat in Jesus's face and they beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands and for his vestures, they cast lots. So back to the goat, it's going out to the desert and the warden carrying it will have to pass by 10 different booths. He is fasting from all food and all water. He's on his way to a cliff. That's the final destination will be a cliff, but there's 10 booths along the way. And those booths have special positions and they're to make sure he's progressing along the way to encourage him, to accompany him. And it's a 12-mile walk in the hot desert. These come every mile. The last one, though, he has to go two miles and see these red arrows. He has to go clear, clear, clear up on a big cliff. And there is food and water at every booth, but he never takes it. But it's just there, just in case. And it, it gives him comfort to know just in case he can't make it, there's food and water. But he, but he would never take it. Okay, finally, he gets all the way up to the cliff with the goat. He arrives at the cliff. He removes the crimson wool that the high priest had tied to the horns of the goat. He divides that crimson wool into two pieces and he reties it again, one side of it, one half of it to the animal's horn, the second to a rock. And so he's able to see when the crimson color on the rock has turned white, he knows that the atonement has been made for Israel's sins. It's the miracle of the crimson wool. And so then he pushes the goat backward with two hands over the cliff and he he has accomplished his task. The scapegoat dies. He crashes to his death and the warden walks back to Jerusalem. He, he can't get the, all the way there. It's too far to walk. It's on the day of the atonement. There are certain regulations. He's not allowed to walk that far back. But the crimson wool, another piece of wool is at the temple. And when that wool also at the temple turned white, from scarlet to white, they would know that the sins of Israel had been forgiven for another year. It was called the miracle of the crimson wool at the sanctuary as well as at the actual site. Then the high priest would read from Leviticus 16th in the court of the women to all present. They would read the day of atonement, the bull, the goat, the offerings, the sin, the blood uh, was all brought into the sanctuary. Atonement was made, the burning of the, the bull and the goat outside the walls of the city. Then the high priest would dispose of all his bloody garments, and then there'd be a great celebration of thanks. The the Johann Gadal, the high priest, would exit, and he would praise and thank God. He was so relieved for a successful day of atonement. And it says in their prayer book, how radiant was the appearance of the Kahan Gadal when he exited in peace from the holy place, like flashes of light that emanate from the splendor of angels. Such was the appearance of the Kahan Gadal. The high priest was radiant. All the sins of Israel and the priesthood were forgiven. They closed the gates at the setting of the sun and the day was over. Now, this was the only way to atone for sins. This is the only life the Jews knew. And it all came to a screeching halt in 70 AD. Why? Because of the destruction of the temple. Jesseus Florus, the Roman pure 
creator of Judea from 66 to 64 AD. He was appointed by Nero. Their wives were friends. He had much antagonism for the Jews. And Josephus records this. He says, this guy, Florus, is primarily to blame for the first Jewish-Roman war. He took office in Caesarea Maritima. We talked about that at the beginning. Florus favored the Greek population over the Jewish population, and there was much disharmony between the two groups. Hellenists sacrificed several birds in earthenware containers at the entrance of the synagogue. That was making the whole building ritually unclean. They go to complain. The Jews complain to Florus. They want a trial. They want redress. But Florus refused to listen to their complaints. He had the petitioners imprisoned, and he angered the Jewish population. He took 17 talents of silver from the temple's treasury in Jerusalem. He claimed it was money for the emperor. The Jewish population began to openly mock Florus. They passed collection baskets around collecting money for poor, poor Florus. Florus was very upset set. He sent a raid to Jerusalem in 66 AD. He sent troops to Jerusalem. They massacred 3,600 Jewish citizens, and this set off an explosive revolution. The uh, arrested individuals were whipped and crucified. Even some of them were Roman citizens. It didn't matter. He was followed in 66 to 70 AD by Marcus Antonius Julianus, but Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, states that the real power at the time was General Vespucian, and then from 70 AD forward, his son Titus. General Titus, Vespucian's son, was the one who ordered the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, burn it to the ground. And we see the the arch of Titus. If you go to Rome in the Forum, you'll see the arch of Emperor Titus, and uh, he becomes emperor when his father dies. But in that arch, you can see the menorah. And, and what when they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, they took it back to Rome, Italy, some of the gold and the, and the treasures from the temple. And you see them on the relief in the arch of Titus. To this day, it's still there in the Roman Forum. All that was left at the temple were some stones. That's it. It was hazed to the ground. Jesus predicted this in Luke 19 when he said, they will not leave one stone up on another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Jews were visited by Messiah and they did not know the time of their visitation. The temple's going to be destroyed. As for these things you see, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Luke 21, 6. So, when the temple was destroyed, that was the end of the Jewish blood sacrifices. No more animal blood sacrifices. And without no blood sacrifices in the temple, there could be no atonement for Israel's sin. To this day, they always said when Messiah comes at the time of Messiah in the messianic era, the Messiah will come and a third temple will be built. Well, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And the Jews said, well, it's taken us 46 years to build. How are you going to raise it in three days? And Jesus said, the temple he spoke of was his body. His own body is the third temple. And his disciples, when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said that. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken because now they're full of the Holy Spirit and everything's illuminated and making sense. Jesus was that third temple that Ezekiel spoke of 2,000 years later. They have still not rebuilt the third temple. Ezekiel 44 said, the gate will remain shut. It shall not be open. No one will enter by it for the Lord, the God of Israel has entered it. It will remain shut. Jesus, Mary's mother was that sealed Eastern gate from Ezekiel 44, the ever immaculate virgin. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12 on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. 
To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.